0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.
1: You are listening to Art Not Science. Presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other
2: events. Tēnā tato katoa. no mai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa kōrero, or The Physics Room. No mai whakarongo mai whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the Director of The Physics Room a contemporary art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Tahi since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. In this episode of Art Not Science, I talked to Honey Brown, Isabel Wade Lee, and Dagan Wells, three of the artists in World Made of Steel, Made of Stone, about their work. World Made of Steel, Made of Stone is an exhibition about making and how it can locate us, consolidate a sense of self and relationships. Bringing us the gallery a range of materials, aluminium, parao rewana, digital media, steel, glass, wool, and language, this exhibition recognises making as a form of thinking. The works in the show invite us to think about the body itself as a series of relationships, physical and material, whānau inherited, gendered and intimate, held in language. World Made of Steel, Made of Stone, also includes work by Deborah Rundle and Josephine Jalisich. Unfortunately, they were not able to join us for this talk as they're based in Tāmaki, but this is something we're planning to reschedule for the future when they can join us here. Honey Brown's work is an interactive website titled Rewana Is and tracks the process of them learning to make Rewana bread. Through the 2020 lockdown, the artist's mother Katrina and father Dred pass on their recipe for Rewana to the artist across various digital channels. The homepage of Honey's website shows a series of dough bugs disappearing down the kitchen sink a soundtrack featuring a sample from Notorious B.I.G.'s I Love the Dough, a video called The Artist Mother, and a number of texts, Instagram messages, word docs, handwritten recipes. Register the sadness, humour, and care in these exchanges. What you make relates to identity. It might be read as an extension of who you are, how you're doing, who your relationships are with. Dagan Wells' textile works in the exhibition, titled No Farmers in Ireland, a maid using wool from sheep at the farm where he lives in Colock Bay, Oraka. This is felted in a process learned from local women of his grandmother's generation, who have the skill and experience to take the wool from raw fleece to blanket and to teach. The wool-mounted frame is made with aluminium from the smelter at T.Y. Point. The blanket's saltier pattern is like the wire in a chain-link fence or a farm gate. On the smaller work, stones set in tin stud the wool like rain, Small tin and stone adornments on the larger textile references the gorse burrs that often snag sheep's wool as they graze. Wells uses primary materials that have underpinned New Zealand's economy since colonisation and may be associated with heteromasculinity and extractive mass-market capitalism. At the same time, working with craft skills learned first-hand in a close-to-home method of finding materials and reuse. In this work, a different future is projected where the rural vernacular is perhaps slower, more queer, more spacious. Isabel Wadeson Lee's work, In the Void Between Fire and Fire, is named for the poet William Blake's Book of Loss, obliquely referencing connections between blacksmithing and creation. The chain, hooks and rails which hold up a TV and banners are hand forged by the artist, while the screen shows a dictionary of peered words gathered by the artist. These are drawn from literary terminology, smithing, metallurgy, the aesthetics of Catholicism. Often, they are words that relate to the body. More generally, Wade and Lee's practice concerns the relationship between language and technology. This work reflects on the way we speak, experience time, the way we move, and are in turn affected by human-made technological developments. In this sense, the act of making becomes reciprocal. Now let's hear from Honey, Isabel, and Dagan. Kia ora, my tato. I just thought before we move into the like celebration part, it's really nice to spend some time just thinking about what's brought the show together and about some of the narratives and stuff that you don't, I guess, that are so important going into making the work, but you don't necessarily understand in the minute that you walk into the room. I'm super interested in those like background narratives, the people that are involved, the relationships that are, that are involved that bring work together. So. In a way, that's an interesting place to start because that is at the guts of the sort of central idea of the show, I think. The thing I was thinking about was making initially, how there's a lot of artists that I'm noticing who are going back to like making methods, very like skills based and maybe learning skills or techniques or learning to work materials that are not so well known now that people are having to sometimes reach back across generations and um, learn old skills and new. So was quite interested in that, thinking about why that might be happening in, in a lot of contemporary practice. And then I was also, I think sometimes it always feel a bit frustrated about with this sort of mainstream art world is how it can always like often focus on like individuals and like solo practitioners and like it's all about one person when really, well I hope you agree but you know there's like so many practices, so many relationships, so many um, favors and so many conversations that feed into every work so I guess I was quite interested in with these practices as well how there was a lot of um how they weren't so individualistic maybe and how they are like quite widely connected with other people and with other practices and with other histories so that was some of my initial thinking bring the show together of course the first thing I do and I'm like have an idea is like it's always like brings artists to the fore so I think I reached out to each of these guys and to Joe and to Deborah as well in Auckland And we started to build what you're seeing in the room. So I might just start with some questions. I know you haven't really come to listen to me talk about my ideas. For a starting thing, if you could each introduce yourselves and say where you're from, say whatever you like, and maybe just give some broad context about your practice in general, the kinds of ideas you're working with. Do you want to start, Daggy?
3: Sure. Uh, Kia ora, my name is Dagan Wiles, and I... I'm an artist currently based in Colic Bay, Ōraka in rural Southland. It's, for those of you that don't know where it is, it's like the absolute bottom of the country. We can see Stewart Island from our house. So yeah, so I've been there for about three years now and that place and that environment has very much kind of shaped my research and kind of the way that I think about material and land and kind of our relationship to it.
2: Yeah. Mm. and you went to art school here eh?
3: and I went to art school here and I lived here for like 10 years Mm -hmm. I got this amazing opportunity to be the Olivia Spencer Bauer resident um, and I sort of came to the end of that year and I was going to move to um, Auckland but then I don't know, things changed and I moved to Colic Bay (laughs) Strong move Yeah (laughs) Thank (laughs) honey
0: Tenakoto, I'm Honey Brown. I studied three years at UC Island Fine Arts and in sculpture. My practice is mainly me exploring my identities as Māori, Takatāpui and every other intersecting kind of identity I got going on. But um, <laughs> and I mainly use digital mediums to kind of have a conversation with those identities and share it
1: Cho, mm. I'm Izzy, I guess the best way to summarize my practice is that I like working with language and useful. Maybe. Yeah, it kind of it changes depending on what I'm interested in at the particular time, but those are kind of like the threads that run through. Yeah. Mm.
2: I think maybe to just start thinking about that that making thing, um, I wondered. Something I really like about all these works is when I look at them, even if I couldn't make them, I totally respect there's a lot of skill involved here, I can sort of imagine how they're made, like in some ways they're familiar to me in a way that may be mass-produced objects that I have around me a lot. I have no idea, like they're quite mysterious as objects. I wondered if you could just talk each bit about your processes of making, what it means, who you learn from, how you learn what failure looks like, some of these things around making. There's a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> How did you make it?
3: <laughs> I guess my, I don't know, like I think being where I am, so living in like a rural location and sort of coming from a city and then moving to the country, I've been thinking a lot about this like I don't know, there's this kind of idea where I'm like, oh, this is where, like, the ingredients come from for, like, everything. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about that until, you know, until being there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and sort of seeing these, like, primary industries, you know, like wool and dairy and forestry and the aluminium smelter is, like, in the news, the local news all the time. And just -hmm. these kinds of, I don't know, relationships to material seem to be quite, like, at the forefront of, like, a lot of conversations in, in these communities. But specifically like wool, I think, I don't know, like I, I've just been sort of drawn to it because I guess sort of growing up, my grandmother worked with wool, my family have worked with wool, and then sort of being in this place, it's like, you know, it's very present there. But I also have been lucky enough to be taught by a local woman who's in her 80s, who lives down the road from me, who actually taught my grandmother to weave in like the early 80s. Yeah, it's bonkers, totally bonkers. But yeah, she's become this like amazing mentor and actually like a really good friend. And she sort of, yeah, she's kind of really helped me in the the sort of like processes, like the making. But also, there's such a kind of wealth of, um, I guess like craft-based kind of practices in rural Southland that, um, yeah, I've been very lucky to to learn the kind of value of the handmade mm. and 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 how that sort of relates to, you know, one's home or. You know, like sort of making something for yourself and for your home and for your family. And um,
2: yeah. Mm. So did your grandma teach you to weave?
3: No. So wool and weaving and spinning has kind of always been kind of around me. Like my grandmother did it. Um, And so I sort of knew the kind of basics. But it wasn't until I moved down to Colette Bay and I met Isabel yeah, and like my first like interaction, like I walked into the studio and she remembered me because I was like the four year old boy that cut all the threads on her loom, um, and that was the first thing, you know, she said to me. And I was like, Yes, I did remember that. I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You are listening to Art Not
1: Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art
2: Space. you honey like the making for you how's that sort of come through because there's like a couple of threads a eh? like digital yeah. and then like in this work with the bread as well yeah
0: um for me I think it was mainly about the communication side of it like it was a way of kind of this thing that I could do with my family even though I was apart um mm. we could have digital conversations video calls and messages, and Going through lockdown, I think that was kind of, was quite an important thing, I think, trying to have that, keep that connection going and have some kind of conversation carrying on. And I think that was mainly what I was kind of loved about the project of making Rewenna or learning to make a is that I could, it wasn't just myself trying to dive into this thing, it was learning something that, connects me to a history of Maori bread making and trying to learn this traditional kind of practice and having my family be a part of that and having these conversations going with them, I think that was kind of the main thing that I kind of took away from it, it was just something that I could share with other people and even share like I didn't get a good outcome but if I were to I could also share that with other people and then share my bug yeah, yeah (laughs) (laughs) and what about when it came
2: to the digital because obviously there's like a resonance with the process that you went through like you're always on video call or that was the way that you had that communication was it just really organic that you decided to make the website and like make that the next step in your kind of making practice
0: I wanted to have something that could host or keep archive of all those conversations and my processes taking photos throughout the my journey of learning and kind of have something to fall back to and keep looking back on. Yeah. Mm,
2: Yeah. And I guess as well, like the communication kind of continues because you can like go in and read things and it's almost like, yeah, communication, but it maintains some of that sort of intimacy. Like you're reading someone else's stuff. You might continue to learn. I might try those recipes.
0: Yeah. I wanted to kind of have something that could kind of reflect or, be something that you look at it and it feels it was it felt like it was my mind it was scrambled yeah. it was a messy it was <laughs> overlapping and overlaying of so many things that I was trying to like keep track of and so yeah that was kind of my thought process of it is like having something that someone could look at and kind of get an idea of what I was going through in that time in yeah. my mind yeah
2: yeah I think it really does do that like I've been sitting with it quite a bit because it's like a nice quiet place to like be when the are really messy and I was like trying to write And um, I read lots of those notes and it is quite like, um, yeah, it feels like you're talking to someone else or you're in someone else's mind. I think you did a really amazing job of like translating it because it doesn't feel translated. It feels like you're just present. Yeah. It's cool. What about you? So I
1: started with this work last year. I was still at uni and i don't really have a solid reason why but I just wanted to do blacksmithing. Like, like I'd done a wee bit as a kid and then like a weekend course and it kind of just became this thing. I like, I'm just gonna make it work. I just whatever I do, I just wanna do blacksmith. So it was it was mostly just in the kind of ideas phase and then lockdown. The mm. And I started sort of at the pan like really built up this very romanticized thing, like being in the fort. Mm.
2: That's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And like fire and metal and like steam. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I hadn't actually done anything.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is that the language part? You're like, I really languaged it. Yeah.
1: So part of that was I was doing a little bit of 3D modeling to try and simulate to try and simulate what it might be like if I just started off with like a piece of steel and then kind of like took it through some transformations. and So I was trying to do that on screen, and it, like there's a massive disconnect between those two things. Mm. But it was kind of fun. Mm. And then, yeah, finally was able to actually start with that. And at first, it was very frustrating
2: are you talking about like making the chamber or what would be yeah
1: and I didn't really have a plan I did not know what I was doing YouTube can only go so far and so it'd be like you know like five six hours just like in the forge just like hand it was exhausting and it's like
2: This is the Flash Dance reference. She's like welding all day and she's like so tired.
1: Yeah, but then I just kept wanting to go back and keep doing it and kind of figure out a little bit how to make it work, how to make the steel do what I wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. Just like fashion for something.
2: Yeah, also has its charm. (laughs) What about the language part? So that was seems like a parallel thing but then there's a really strong connection between, yeah. especially in your dictionary word, right?
1: So one of the starting points is that I was making like lists of words that I liked that I'd come across in like researching like blacksmithing stuff. And I'm like, that's a really nice word. Mm-hmm. But then there were other words that were somewhat unrelated to that. Yeah, a lot of them are to do with linguistics, like poetry terms. So I was just interested in kind of like these names for things. And then the dictionary became a way to connect everything together in one sort of form Mm -hmm. um, and kind of make make these words what I wanted them to be because I wrote the definitions. Mm. And to try and make like a lot of these words, I guess – A lot of them aren't in use anymore, particularly the like blacksmithing terminology, Mm. Um, and yeah, to kind of like bring them back, give them some kind of life. Mm. Um, But in like quite a like bodily sort of like tactile sense, Mm -hmm. like
2: did you feel like you sort of experienced some of those words, like in a bodily, like when you read? The first one said, like, a Neil, or something, and I was like, isn't that a metal thing? And, like, I guess yeah. you know what that is in an yeah. embodied way as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to take some of that experience of, like, forging that sort of richness mm-hmm. of that experience and kind of put it into these words, which could completely kind of dry, especially the, the linguistics stuff.
2: But in here, yeah. it's like you've, written, you've kind of written a poem with them, right? So they, they're like, yeah. they still belong to their history, but they also got a new context as yeah. well as being in a digital work, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: A lot of it was also, I was kind of thinking about rhythms and thinking about words that, you know, sound the same, but they have a different meaning. Or...
2: What's an example?
1: So I think one of the ones in there is like, alter like, to change something oh, yeah. and the altar, like, in a church, things like that, um, mm-hmm. in certain words, which is felt the same, but they're said differently, for example, might be like there's entrance and entrance, just mm-hmm. things like that, where um, kind of drawing on certain traditions of poetry, where there's... There's that kind of oral thing where you can kind of hear it even as you're
2: reading, and yeah. I think I, something you wrote as well was talking about the sort of rhythms that would be, or well, the, the soundscape that would be in a forge as well, like the sounds yeah. of beating and the sounds yeah. of, I don't know, smoke puffing, whatever the <laughs> sounds are. But um, the idea yeah. that with a lot of those um, words, even though they're not onomatopoeic as such, but mm. they still bring sound with them, yeah, yeah. or maybe they came out of yeah. sound, like maybe that's why they were made in the first place. It, yeah. it made sense because it resonated with the action. Yeah. 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 So. It's something that's come up here. this idea of like rhythm or repetition, like in making, thinking of your references to rhythm. And then I'm thinking of like kneading bread and the kind of like pauses and the sequence of like a making process for bread. And then I don't really understand the felting process, but...
3: It's a rhythm. It's like yeah. a rolling. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You... The process is kind of like you've got these massive like bamboo mats that you sort of like push the wall down with mm-hmm. your hands and then just roll it up mm-hmm. and then unroll it and and you do that for I don't know ten thousand times. Um, yeah, it's all about and rhythm. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and soap.
2: Yeah, so it's like even though I mean something crazy is like you sometimes walk into galleries and it's like so still and so kind of static and like kind of perfect and then I was interested in what that means in relation to all the bodies that have like made these works like. You guys all had to be kind of strong and skilled and focused or whatever. You know, whatever was up with your body, like definitely did relate to the way that you made that work. It's an interesting part of of this work. You are listening to
1: Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space.
2: I just wanted to go, you talked about identity, right? And I just sort of was thinking with each of your works, There's like certain gendered associations that comes with it maybe or there's just like yeah there's expectations that come with these crafts maybe because they are so old and they have sort of a bunch of embedded kind of norms that come with them. Maybe if you just wanted to talk about like your encounter with some of those norms or don't talk about norms but how these works have maybe helped you articulate your identity differently something to do with identity and something to do with the making process that you've been engaging with. How's that?
3: Yeah, well, I think about my identity maybe more so um, now that I'm working with fabric and wool. Mm-hmm. But I guess also, yeah, living mm-hmm. in the, I think mostly because it's, like, mostly associated with I kind, of, kind of, like, female craft. Yeah. Um, and also the people that teach me are all, I don't know, women who are sort of my grandmother's generation. But, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that and that sort of relationship, especially, you know, sort of growing up kind of queer and that relationship that you know specifically like queer boys have with their grandparents and their grandmother I think about that kind of relationship a lot. Mm.
2: Well a lot of your work references the farm and like being on the farm and I guess there's a lot of like yeah different kind of masculine farmy tropes that you kind of encounter in a way.
3: Yeah totally and I definitely sort of come across that more so living in rural Southland like it is I don't know like iterative norm of culture like is a thing and specifically there's a kind of like an expectation that you you know you get married and you have children and like i know that exists like i you know but i think it's like a very visible um in rural communities mm. because um i don't know succession and kind of like all these kinds of things you know they all sort of play into um yeah rural culture yeah But also, I don't know, there is something incredibly romantic about living on the land and sort of being part of that, these processes.
2: Yeah. And also things are changing. I mean, that's something I love about your work. Like, it feels like it does project this kind of different possible future, that being, like, rural does not necessarily mean what it might have meant for a long time. In New Zealand, like, that there's more scope for these different ways of being, I suppose. There's regenerative agriculture
3: yeah totally and I think I'm just lucky like my partner is just like really interested in yeah for example regenerative agriculture and so these quite like quite progressive conversations are happening in a place where things have been pretty stagnant for like a really long time and then all of a sudden in the last couple of years there's all these different conversations about like environment and kind of our responsibility to that environment and then yeah regenerative agriculture and all these kinds of like I don't know quest like all these things that really do need to be addressed mm-hmm. are starting now and I mean even you know like two queer boys living on the farm you know like that would have been yeah like that would have been pretty wild 10 years ago you know and now it's like it's a thing and it's fine and that's yeah I'm really I feel quite happy and lucky and um yeah,
2: yeah. And it's cool to think how making plays into all those conversations as well, like being able to make some of the things that you need and reuse and know, recognize those ingredients that you mentioned, like for what they are, that they're actually like life sustaining if you just aren't completely dissipated from them.
3: I mean, that's the sort of thing that really sort of surprised me about living in this place. Like, I just remember that moment where I was just like, oh, this is like where, you know, everything comes from. Like this is the ingredients I like here, you know, and like sort of living in an urban environment, like, you know, things just sort of arrive at your door and you don't really need to think about where they came from. But, um, you you know, you see that when you live in a rural yeah. location.
2: Like eye contact with the sheep. Yeah, like,
1: <laughs> I eat you.
2: <laughs> what about you, honey? Like, you raised the I word, so... <laughs>
0: For me, even though bread making, so like a woman's work kind of thing, in the kitchen kind of idea, but I didn't really feel that personally because it was my father who makes rewina bread at home and it's him who was kind of helping me with the physical making of it, explaining like how to knead it properly, how to add things, when to add that. Although the recipe did come from my mother's mother, so I guess there is still that connection to the woman of the family and passing that on. But um, mainly for me, I think the identity that making this resonated with most is my Māori whakapapa and carrying on this practice which my people have made for years and kind of having that connection to my tipuna and that practice. And that's, I think, why it felt so heart-wrenching when I couldn't get it right because internally I was like tearing myself apart, like, how can you not make a bread? <laughs> what is this? You're not Maori? No, like, but, um, yeah, kind of that struggle of trying to find cultural identity and making something when, you know, it's there regardless, but especially in Otatahi, which, you know, I'm sure we all can know that there isn't a big um, population, or I don't feel like I see myself a lot in this city, so it's easy to kind of feel disconnect here for me personally Mm -hmm. and so trying to find these things that i can do myself to have that connection and then when it doesn't go how you want it to go i think there was a lot of internal struggle with that and trying to sit with that and think about like why it's so hard on me to Mm -hmm. not be able to succeed at this was it interesting
2: you know you've like you made this work in 2020 as you said and you've like returned to it this year Mm -hmm. Did you, what's that experience been like? I know you've made a new component, you've kind of revisited it. Does it feel different to you, like at this kind of return moment?
0: It does. When I was making it, I think I was still in that kind of mindset of really feeling torn with the failure of it. But now, after a while, kind of being able to look back and realise that like, failing at that didn't mean as much as it meant in my head and going back to it and... And being able to look at it as a learning process and appreciate that just the fact that i wanted to try and connect through physical acts and making bread i think i appreciate that a lot more and can kind of see the light in it
2: yeah it's funny i feel like when you see that work like a few times over sometimes it seems super sad and then other times it seems super funny yeah. you know and it's like what like it's but it's the same work And also your mum's like laughing in it sometimes when you listen. So then it sort of gives it this other sort of energy. But I suppose it can be both of those things, eh? not.
0: I think because the conversations that I was having with my family, they were all really lighthearted. I'd call them up and be like, it's failing, help. (laughs) Like, what do I do? And then, but then with myself, I think it was a lot harder on um, when I kind of started to step back from those conversations yeah with the light-hearted communication with family I think that's where that humor and the fun as well kind of comes through yeah. and just trying to make something and trying to learn and that being something precious
2: yeah yeah totally when I was thinking about this sort of identity I was like oh the, the idea of like investing some of your identity and the ability to learn or like the process of learning is quite freeing in a certain way because it's just like if you're a learner like that's just like ultimately fluid yeah and it keeps you in a relationship with other people because you can't you can kind of learn from YouTube, but it's really hard to learn. I'm personally very bad at learning from YouTube. Like, I'll just open another tab while I'm watching it. Thank you. Do you want to talk about about identity in your work? Like, You've sort of talked about this romance.
1: Yeah, you know, a short while after I kind of decided I wanted to do smithing. Um, I was talking to my dad, and he was saying that, like, seven generations or something um, along like his kind of family line they were all blacksmiths mm. and i was like oh okay
2: that's so sort of interesting yeah yeah
1: um, and then he was sort of saying he's like oh your granddad would be so proud of you wow. except for one thing <laughs> he's like you're not man <laughs> yeah. oh <my> god <laughs> so not proud of me yeah <laughs> he's like you're carrying it on kind of um, right like, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I, I know there are like obviously a lot of gendered connotations of blacksmithing. I see the the type as like this big, like brawny guy, you know, like very very masculine kind of thing. And yeah, I guess in conversations with people, they've sort of been like, "You must be really strong to be able to do this."
2: And you don't, is the thing. <laughs> you don't. Well, you are strong. I mean, you must be strong yeah, to do this.
1: I genuinely believe the thing that you need is like stamina. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, if you are doing this every day, you would like build strength. Mm. It's not like you have to be super ripped. Super ripped. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs>
2: Just so this is quite a left field way but I think we'll move to, move to the end but I was just thinking about this sort of note of obsessiveness It's like come through a lot in lots of our conversations I also talked you know over the last week because Deborah and Joe haven't been here but we've had lots of conversations about the sort of minutiae of like how they want their work to be in this space and it's something I always appreciate about artists because you don't necessarily know the kinds of details that are going to be the priority when it comes to install but you definitely learn those things. I wondered if you wanted to sort of finish with a comment on your relationship to obsessiveness or to detail or to those those sorts of things.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's something when you're like learning something, like it's so easy to become like super obsessed about like making it perfect. And I think it's been a real kind of exercise for me to like realize that actually, like that's not really the end game, you know, it's, a, it's more about like the process. For this show specifically, I've just been like saying these kind of quotes to me, and one of them was from—I um, don't even know if this is true—but apparently, Pauline Rhodes, after she like places something, will sort of like look at it and be like, "I accept this, and now I'm walking away." And so I've been—I've been saying that to that myself. Happens. That happens. Yeah, I've been doing that every day. I accept this. I am walking away.
0: Just a life skill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, similar. I think again, it's like super easy when you're doing kind of haptic learning and you're really putting your body into the learning process. You continue thinking about it, even when you aren't physically doing the act, you sit with it. And I think that's kind of the obsession that I kind of went through is that it was just something that's constantly on mind making bread and the bug and especially being something that early when a bug is something that you have to care for every day and feed and you need to make sure it's in the right environment. and So with my process, it was something that you have to constantly think about and be aware of and get into that flow, especially when making bread as well, kind of being aware of what you're doing and the time and everything that you're putting into making it. Mm, like it's alive, eh? Yeah.
2: What actually made me think of that question about obsession was remembering the note on your website where it's like you wake up at 2 a.m and you're like get a handful of sugar and like go and feed your, be yeah. the bug, be the bug. Are you obsessive, is there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. But that's actually a powerful thing, right? In the, yeah. in the context of work like this, that's like momentum and dedication that you think, sort of need to harness sometimes?
1: I mean, there's definitely an element of being obsessive, but it's also... Being too stubborn, mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm going to make this work, and mm. it's sometimes like losing sight of why I'm doing it. Yeah, it's like kind of becomes about like problem solving, and figure out a way to do this. But yeah, I don't know. I often think about the kind of tools we use or the technology we have where... 100 200 years ago you know everyday people knew how to fix them i have this weird anxiety about not knowing how things work and i have to know it's like i can't use the things and know how it works and i
2: can fix it and so as he fixed our drill today like show yeah. up it was
3: like 100 pieces yeah it was like i'm going to fix yeah and I was and like, right.
2: like
1: do you
3: I was like, what about,
2: um, do you want to focus on the work, Izzy?
1: <laughs> Legit. But I think part of that is why technology or the craft such as blacksmithing is very satisfying. Mm. I don't want to say it's simple, but it's kind of intuitive. And yeah, it's like there's a real joy in knowing how things are made and, and how to deal with it. I totally agree. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I feel like you can really feel that in your work, like especially with those language works. You're like, yeah, it's very satisfying sense when you read them. I just think as well like that kind of obsession or that kind of, you know, strong focus on a subject that is out of that does come innovation or comes like shifts and changes like in you physically. But I think we were talking the other day about technology in relation to language and how it was like often young women were the, the language innovators yeah, and I don't know why that might be, but there's like the sort of focus or like energy put into communication and yeah. in all its like styles and forms. And I was quite quite interested in that yeah. as a.
1: And I guess the other thing as well, like language changes or the sort of terminology that's used, it can't be engineered. It's kind of a very fluid thing, and it also can't be stopped as well. It just happens, and there are trends and sort of patterns in the way that happens but can't really predict where where it's going but one of the things they kind of do know for sure is that like young women are generally the drivers of these changes
2: yeah so young women make change so yeah (laughs) I think it's a great note to leave it we all agree I do want to say thank you to you guys I know it's like been an interesting time over the last bit with being like in and out of lockdowns and all the things that complicate the already complex process of, like, developing work for a show. So I really respect you guys' practice. I've learned so much from you. And um, it's really nice to have this public chat today with you as well. So thank you, Hayes. That was Honey Brown, Isabella and lee and Dagan Wells discussing their work in World Made of Steel, Made of Stone. Come and see their work in our gallery space in the Art Centre Registry Editions building at 301 Montreal Street until Sunday, the 12th of December. We're open from 11am to 5pm from Tuesday through Friday and 11am to 4pm on Saturdays and Sundays. Thank you for listening and tune in again next month on Friday, 17 December at 8pm for our next episode of Art Not Science. Hey, Kornara!
1: The physics room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientek, Resine Paints, and the Crater Rim.